not just in kind of public settings, but even in his own kind of private expressions and quiet moments, he would he would he would not stop being himself. He was a native man within his culture and his heritage, and he was a Christian man, a follower of Jesus, who was steeped in that heritage and didn't reject it. And so for me personally, as an Asian American, I, that really set a very profound example for me to say, don't ever be ashamed of the way God has made you. Richard set that example for me. Again, standing tall, willing to wear his culture on his sleeve, literally, and also at the same time, presenting his culture, whether it was dance or drums or singing or, or the, his, his, the very clothing that he wore, the examples that he used, expressing his culture in very bold, courageous, and also sympathetic uh, ways that allowed folks to get to know him even more and in a, in, a, in a deep way. And welcome to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast. This podcast is an audio companion to the book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice. I'm Shay Tuttle. In each episode of this podcast, I'll talk with one of our authors about the person they profiled for the book and about their writing process. Today, I'm talking with Sung Chan Ra. Sung Chan Ra is Milton B. Engebretson, Professor of Church Growth and Evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. He is the author of The Next Evangelicalism, published by IVP Books in 2009, and Prophetic Lament, published by IVP Books in 2015. For our book, Sung Chan wrote on Richard Twiss. Well, thank you so much um, for talking to me. I'm excited to talk about Richard Twist and um, his life and your friendship and all of that. So thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Could you give a brief summary of Richard Twist's significance, especially for people who might not be familiar with his story? Yeah, Richard is, you know, is a 20th, 21st century figure, and he was he was kind of emerging right at the t- at the height of uh, evangelicalism's stronghold on some of the national narratives um, around religion in America, and obviously the, the the tip of the spear in that kind of evangelical narrative was politically conservative, hyper individualistic, maybe a lack of concern about justice. These would be maybe kind of more stereotypical perceptions of evangelicalism. And uh, Richard, as a Native American man, kind of broke through some of these stereotypes, broke through some of these assumptions. He had an evangelical audience. He spoke to evangelical crowds and um, evangelical churches and gatherings. And he was able to speak very powerfully in a prophetic, incisive, yet humorous and thoughtful way that actually changed a lot of people's perceptions about issues like justice, but also as a Native American man, the way he brought forth issues around the Native American community. He was probably one of the the most uh, preeminent uh, spokesperson for the Native community among evangelicals. As uh, someone who identified himself as an evangelical, he would have been one of the foremost voices within evangelical Christianity on behalf of Native Americans. 
That's great. Um, so you have kind of a unique situation among the writers in this book because you actually knew Richard personally. Most of the writers didn't know the person that they're writing about. Can you say just a little bit about that friendship? Yeah, I mean, that was such a blessing to be able to write this chapter about a very dear friend and a very significant mentor in my life. Richard and I met um, back in uh, 2003, actually, many, many years ago. And we met at a conference and we had some mutual friends. I was in the early stages of exploring issues around Native American issues, uh, both from an academic perspective, but also more from a church a church and ministry perspective. Uh, and so I got to know a lot of folks around Richard's circle. And, you know, they introduced me to each other and introduced me as friends. And when I first got to meet Richard, he was just so open and kind and gracious, immediately invited me to his home. I don't think he thought I was going to take him up on it, but I happened to be in the Pacific Northwest. My family and I were traveling there and I said, hey, we're going to stop by. And he graciously invited me to stop by his house and remember meeting his family, meeting his wife and just hanging out at his house and seeing his office. And it was just a very uh, great start to a friendship. And over the years, Richard made a lot of effort to reach out to me whenever he was in town. He would reach out to to uh, spend some time with me. Whenever we found ourselves at the same conference, we would sp uh, spend uh, uh, late nights talking about things. And Richard not only taught me about Native American issues and about biblical justice and about seeing through a different set of eyes, but he also was a mentor in, in friendship, relationship. So to be able to write a chapter on someone who was such a dear friend, a very significant mentor for me personally, was uh, was a real, real gift to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, I'm so I'm so glad that you did. Um, so you write some about Richards growing up that he was born on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation. He had something of a difficult childhood adolescence. You kind of describe it as a a sort of representative experience, and that many children and families on reservations experience. A range of things, poverty, disease, addiction, abuse. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about Richard's childhood and then also kind of how it fits into that larger picture of reservation life? Yeah, I, I read about his kind of what we might call from a distance, his youthful rebellion or youthful indiscretion and some of the things that he did as a teenager. But really needing to see that through the lens of reservation life, through the lens of a system and structure in place that actually made it very difficult for uh, young Native men and women to flourish in a society that seemed to be against them. Uh, so Richard, again, had his kind of childhood rebellion, grew up in a broken home, didn't really know his father, uh, lived with his mom, had some of the kind of the youthful rebellion around alcohol and drugs. And so on one level, you can see that as well. You know, a lot of teenagers engage in that kind of behavior. But in, in, in another sense, being on the reservation uh, where there is such rampant poverty, where if you want to identify the poorest community and the least healthy community in terms of the standard markers we identify as health, highest rates of alcohol, highest rates of unemployment, highest rates of, of treatable uh, illnesses, uh, highest rates of domestic violence, any kind of marker of, of, a, of unhealthy, uh, difficult challenges in a community, uh, the Native community would experience, and it would be very pronounced on the reservation. So while uh, Richard was kind of a troubled youth on one level, on another level, the, the culture and the social context actually, actually also drove uh, some of his rebellion and was also framing and very important part of the backdrop of his rebellion. Mm-hmm. So when I read your chapter, it 
it seems to me that Richard sort of had two two major conversion experiences in a, in a certain kind of way. So first, he has this sort of awakening in adolescence to activism as he becomes involved with the American Indian movement. And then a few years later, he has this this dramatic conversion experience when he becomes, um, in his words, a follower of the Jesus way. So I'm wondering, first of all, if you agree with that reading that there are kind of these two conversions. And if so, how do you see sort of those two pieces of who he was as a part of his witness in the world? Yeah, so I I would actually say maybe there might have been three conversions. That first conversion, again, in his youth, when he became an activist, joined the American Indian Movement, uh, was part of the occupation of the Indian Affairs Bureau in Washington, D.C. So he would have been kind of what we might call as kind of a young, you know, radical protester who was speaking against the injustices of the world. And, and obviously he had seen it. He had seen it firsthand. He had seen the the challenges in his community. He had seen the, the pain in, uh, in the Native community and the lack of opportunity, and he would have been awakened to that reality and expressed himself through activism, uh, through many of the kind of civil disobedience and activist kind of causes during that time. He does talk about his kind of um, disgruntlement with that kind of movement, though, seeing the same amount of dysfunction in some of these uh, uh, civic movements that he saw in on the reservation. He saw you know, the same kind of problems within this, this community of activists that he saw within the community on the reservation. So he was very much aware of maybe the limitations of that uh, from his perspective and from his experience. Then he does have this very dramatic conversion experience. He actually moves to Hawaii as part of his um, kind of running away from the drug addiction problems that he had in the, in the United States mainland. And he has this encounter like this vision of Jesus. And it actually causes him to fall on his knees and become a follower of Jesus. It's a very, obviously, very dramatic, supernatural conversion. And I would say the other part of that was once he became a Christian, so to speak, in terms of his identification within his faith, he really felt people trying to put him into a little box to say, well, if you're a Christian, you have to act in this way. You have to be, you know, Calvinist. You have to be Arminian. You have to be Pentecostal. You have to be Methodist. You have to be Episcopalian. You have to be Presbyterian, uh, Baptist. So he found himself kind of adapting culturally to the expectations of what it meant for him to be a Christian in America in particular. So I remember at his funeral, they showed a picture of his life story that drew the most laughs. I mean, and the whole crowd of people just just broke out laughing because it was a picture of him when he had become a pastor, dressed in this three-piece suit with glasses and short hair, and it just looked nothing like the Richard that all of us knew. But that was part of him trying to adapt to these expectations of what it meant to be a Christian, to be in a three-piece suit, to wear a tie, to cut his hair and to wear, you know, kind of the the uniform of a Christian pastor. The additional awakening for him was kind of going back to his original roots of recognizing the need among his people, the need to contextualize the gospel for the native voices and for the native people, uh, and then realizing how significant that contextualization of the gospel to the natives could be not just to his own community, but to all evangelicals, to all Americans, to all Christians, uh, to all followers of Jesus everywhere in the world. So that would, I would kind of even say that might have been his third conversion, where he experienced not only this initial sense of, I've got to do something for my people, and then becoming a follower of the Jesus way, and then realizing that those two things are not always in conflict with one another. That to be an activist that represents and serves his people and contextualizes the gospel for his people is actually a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus.
Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. And that leads perfectly to talk a little bit about his work sort of among um, American Christianity more broadly. So could you start by reading the excerpt um, about the 2011 CCDA conference? Sure. Uh, When Richard Twist walked onto the platform at the 2011 CCDA National Conference, he presented one of the most significant talks in the ministry's history. To a largely evangelical audience, he introduced the narrative of Native American Christians, presenting his perspective with humor as he challenged U.S. Christian captivity to white supremacy. He would say, and the Bible says when you come to Christ, you become a new creation. All things pass away and all things become white. Amen. So I was thinking, what should I call white people? I could say Caucasian, Euro-American, Anglo, Eurocentric, pale face, honky, Q-tip. I could like come up with a whole bunch of words. So God gave me a politically correct term for white people. It's pigmentally challenged. One conference attendee reported she was laughing so hard that she didn't realize that she had been surgically cut to the core of her beliefs. Richard confronted the Christian academic world's theological allegiance to old, dead, white reformers. And he reminded the audience Christians were complicit in the formation of boarding schools that contributed to the cultural genocide of the Native American community and the severe abuse of Native American children with multi-generational implications. What Richard did that day was make visible the formerly invisible story of humanity and culture of the Native American community. Richard then asked, how do we collectively rescue theology from the metaphoric cowboy? the one who goes with a sense of entitlement to live his or her destiny out in the name of the Lord at the expense of others, with no consideration for who they are and what they want. Calling the white evangelical world into a position of learning from Native Americans, Richard spoke out for respect and honor for Native Americans as he stood tall and proud before the listening audience. Thank you. So early in your chapter, you refer to Richard as a Native American missionary to American Christianity. What do you think American Christians need to learn from Richard? Yeah, I mean, that was the beautiful thing about Richard, because maybe the stereotype out there, and this is actually true in terms of efforts, the Native community uh, in the United States, actually, is one of the most missionized communities, one of the most evangelized. And Richard would oftentimes joke about missionaries coming in every every week. They would alternate weeks, and they would come in one week, they would paint the barn red, and the next week, they would paint the barn white, and the next week, they would paint the barn red. And every year, eight weeks in a row, a different group would come in, paint the barn, and then actually do a VBS of the same material, the same 20 kids would get saved every week. So the Native community, as Richard reminded, reminded us, was quite frequently missionized and quite frequently had missionaries coming to it. But then the impact was oftentimes um, negligible. And you had, again, kind of these high markers for poverty and, and, and a lack of well-being in these communities. And so what Richard saw was, uh, as he was being empowered by the gospel, as he was being empowered by the Christian message, he felt that he could be a missionary to the the uh, non-Native communities, even as a community that had been over-missionized and over-evangelized and had been the object of missionary effort. He began to kind of take on an agency and, a, and an authority and a, a spiritual a boldness that said, I have something significant to say to the community at large. And part of missionizing, if you can use that word, my community, part of 
giving the gospel to my community is also empowering us to speak on our uh, speak for ourselves and to hear what we have to say. So that's why I, I kind of use the phrase Richard stood tall a couple of times in my chapter, because that is what he did. He was physically very tall. He was like six foot four. But also he would kind of stand metaphorically and in, as a tall, imposing, yet kind and gentle figure who was able to speak truth with authority. And that's not the typical image of a Native American. The Native American is the recipient of help. And yet what Richard did was become a teacher an elder, a rabbi uh, to the community, the very community that thought he needed their help, he became their teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's clear from your chapter, um, some of the stories you tell that, that Christians haven't just been sort of bystanders to the injustices experienced by the Native community, but they've actually caused a lot of them. Um, and you mentioned the doctrine of discovery. Could you talk a little bit about that, how that's used? Sure. So, I mean, I was so inspired by this that my next book is on the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm co-authoring with a Native American uh, activist, uh, Navajo, uh, Mark Charles, and he and I are writing a book about the Doctrine of Discovery. I mentioned it in, in kind of a, in a, in a, an ex, in a kind of a short way, in a brief way, but there's obviously a longer history and theology behind this. But it, the Doctrine of Discovery was a series of papal bulls in the 16th century that gave the European powers, in particular Spain and Portugal, this kind of theological justification for the atrocities they would carry out for several centuries going forward. So there was a theological framework for the European conquest of Africa uh, through Portugal, as Portugal conquered Africa and enslaved and started the transatlantic slave trade. It was Prince Henry, the uncle of King Alfonso of Portugal, that started the slave trade. But they, they were equipped, Alfonso and Henry were equi equipped with papal bulls that would eventually become known as the Doctrine of Discovery that gave them permission to see black bodies as inferior. Uh, and the second half of the Doctrine of Discovery was actually uh, was given to Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, and mentioned specifically in that document was Christopher Columbus as kind of a favored son of the church, who would go forth and as the true image bearer of God, could gaze upon the native body and see the native body as inferior. And so the, the, the uh, ridiculousness of seeing Columbus as the discoverer of America, can you really discover a continent? that has 6 million people and 2,000 civilizations already on it. You can only do that if you have a dysfunctional theology backing you up. And so that's why uh, when we talk about, well, where were we as a, where are we as a nation in our relationship with the Native community, we have to look at these very profound historical and theological roots and to say that some of this atrocious history that developed over the several centuries and where the Native American community is now, the genocide, effective genocide of the Native community, if you look at the numbers of people killed over a period of time, the effect of genocide upon the Native community is actually higher in proportion to the genocide of the Jews in Germany. That's how atrocious these numbers are. And yet, uh, what we don't realize is how profoundly those acts of genocide were rooted in a Christian doctrine, the doctrine of discovery, that allowed Spain and Portugal and the rulers of Spain and Portugal and the agents that includes the military, the explorer, but also the missionary to see non-white bodies, such as black bodies in Africa and native bodies in the American continent, as inherently inferior to the European body. The reality of our 
reservations now in, in North America, the reality of the oppression and the suffering experienced by Native Americans now have a unfortunate, very deep uh, theological foundation to them. They were not coming out of just a secular system. They were coming out of a theological justification for many of these actions. Mm. Yeah, you, you also talk about what um, what I see basically as just bad Bible reading, <laughs> where you know, <laughs> white Christians read the stories of Genesis, for instance, and see themselves as the Israelites, the sort of inheritors of the promised land from God without regard for who might be living there. So it just, it kind of makes me wonder about, you know, white American Christians now learning to be better readers of the Bible. How do we sort of open our eyes <laughs> to these huge failures and start to learn to do that in ways that are more responsible and, and whole, you know? That's a great question. And I would just say not just better readers of the Bible, or just maybe readers of the Bible. Uh, so sure, yeah. <laughs> many of the, the bad theology now, if you trace back where they're getting some of these political, social, historical ideas from, they're not they're definitely not coming from the Bible. And they're not they're not definitely not coming from actual history. Uh, they're coming from Dinesh D'Souza. They're coming from mockumentaries that talk about America as this uh, chosen land. And I'm I'm stunned how many as I travel the country and speak on these issues. I'm stunned how many people spout off just this horrible non-real history, <laughs> fake news history, as if that is actually what's going on in the world around them, or that's the actual story. And how many people are quoting Glenn Beck and you know, uh, Alex Jones as their source of authority rather than the Bible itself. Or if they're quoting Bible, the Bible, as you're saying, they're just, they're just spouting, you know, kind of a nonsensical uh, interpretation of it. So, and obviously one of the, the major misinterpretations is kind of uh, the United States as the inheritors of the promise of Israel. And, and that's just a, just a horrible biblical teaching that's, I mean, non-biblical teaching, that there's just nothing in the Bible that points towards the United States as any, at any point, um, obviously the U.S. is not mentioned in the Bible at any point. Uh, <laughs> there is no sense of any nation aside from Israel during that moment being the promised people and, you know, God's kind of favored nation. We, we don't live in a theocracy, and yet people are kind of hearkening back to a misinterpretation of the of the scriptures in order to kind of affirm that theocracy for the United States. And what it does is it gives justification for uh, horrific actions. So it's okay to enslave Africans because it helped to build a Christian nation like the United States. It's okay to wipe out an entire civilization and people group because we got to claim land for the promised people of God. Because we're trying to build a city set on a hill, the kind of the words of John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts. We're trying to express a manifest destiny. Uh, so even as we look at some of the language around European colonial settler expansion in America, so much of that language is kind of theologically tainted language. And uh, it shapes, as uh, Willie Jennings says, it shapes a dysfunctional Christian imagination, a theological imagination that leads to some of the horrible expressions that we have now. Now, I, I think the antidote to that, or partially the antidote to that, is better scriptural understanding. That if we read the Bible, we will see, wait, the United States of America is never listed as the promised land, ever. So we can't assume that because that's just not in the Bible. I don't remember a single place in the Bible that talks about our right to bear arms. Uh, that's not in the Bible. 
the Bible is filled with over a hundred references about caring for the alien and the immigrant among us. Wow, what would our country look like if we took the Bible actually seriously <laughs> rather than what we think the Bible says? I mean, what we're talking about is a biblical theological illiteracy that leads to to just a horrible dysfunction around America as a Christian nation, America as a chosen people of God, and therefore we can do whatever we want. America should be put first. If we just would read our Bibles better, we would just say things like, well, actually the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. There are so many things in the Bible itself that actually speak so in, in contrast to what we see that passes for theology in the American church right now. And I think one of the great things about Richard was he called that out. He called out this theological dysfunction in the church. He called out the dysfunctional narratives. He did it with humor, but he called it out and said, this is not what, what the scriptures testify. This is not what God wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the stories you tell about Richard make clear that he was really a bold person, that he was willing to offend people um, with his yeah. language sometimes, or the stories that he told, or his, even his physical presence, you know, wearing traditional dress or, or whatever it might be. Um, can you talk about this aspect of his his personality a little bit? Yeah, I my favorite thing, in, and my, I opened the chapter with this, is just kind of spending time with Richard and the boldness within with which he walked into a room. Now, again, he was about six four. I'm about five seven, five eight on a good day, and so you know he's a, he's a foot almost a foot taller than me. And as an Asian American, I tend to be kind of you know wanna blend into the crowd a little bit more. And there's a Japanese proverb that I think is very important in my my own cultural framework, which is the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. So for many Asian Americans, we, you know, maybe sometimes we don't want to stick out too much. We want to kind of blend in a little bit more where, you know, sometimes I say our food represents us, tofu and, and rice are good carriers of flavors, but we don't maybe carry our own flavor type of thing. Now, I'm, I'm doing that as kind of a joke with tongue in cheek, but what Richard called out of me even was this kind of boldness to say, well, why hide your, the incredible ways that God has made you? Why hide the incredible cultural expressions that God put into your, your family and into, into your life? And so the fact that Richard would dress in a way and was very intentional about growing his hair long and, and identifying that as part of his cultural heritage. One of the, season, the, the, the scenes that I describe in the book were at a, a bar in Boston and he has a feather in his hair and, you know, he, he would, he would, he would do that intentionally. He would, he would braid his hair in a way that demonstrated his, you know his cultural heritage. Yeah, uh, he would have uh, regalia, pieces of regalia, and 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 uh, pieces of his heritage, kind of on his clothing and in his necklaces and his jewelry. So Richard was never shy about presenting his heritage before others and and wholeheartedly expressing that. Now, for some evangelical communities, that would have been, you know, hey, wait a minute, you know. Yeah, and he would play, get up there and play his Indian drum, native drum. And people would say, wait a minute, isn't that invoking demons? And isn't that where, you know, the paganism, they would accuse him of syncretism because he would dance their native dances and express the native rituals. And so I saw that from Richard, um, not just in kind of public settings, but even in his own kind of private expressions and quiet moments, he would, he would, he would not stop being himself. He was a native man within his culture and his heritage. And he was a Christian man, a follower of Jesus, who was steeped in that heritage and didn't reject it. And so for me personally, as an Asian American, 
I, that really set a very profound example for me to say, don't ever be ashamed of the way God has made you. Richard set that example for me. Again, standing tall, willing to wear his culture on his sleeve, literally, and also at the same time, presenting his culture, whether it was dance or drums or singing or, uh, or the, his, his, the very clothing that he wore and the examples that he used, expressing his culture in very bold, courageous, and uh, also sympathetic uh, ways that allowed folks to get to know him even more and, in, a, in, a, in a deep way. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm sort of intrigued. I think even by his um, his willingness to be at times offensive, or to offend people. I mean, it may not be. It may. It maybe it shouldn't be offensive. But there were things that he might do that that might offend people, and he was willing to take that risk. And I'm. I'm thinking about that in the context of sort of where we are culturally, where there's so much kind of, I don't know being offensive just for the sake of riling people up or, yeah. or whatever. And so I'm wondering about kind of the the substance of that. I'm not sure the best way to ask the question, but you know, how how was Richard doing that in a way that had meaning and substance as opposed to just, you know, just setting out to make people angry? That's a great question. And I that's the thing. I Richard never set out to make people angry. He and I are the same Enneagram number. If you guys do, if anybody know Enneagram or personality test type of thing, we actually have very similar personalities. And the personality type is actually people pleaser. Uh, we like to be liked. And Richard and I would joke about like, you know, everybody uh, sees us as kind of, uh, you know, confrontational, angry people. But at the heart of, you know, Richard was someone who, who, who genuinely liked people and generally wanted people to like him. So I don't think he was doing that to like, get people angry in that sense of the word, or to provoke like an angry response. I think he just presented who he was and people were offended by that. And that's the part that I think really spoke to me. It's like, he's not out there to just like get people angry, you know, tick them off and then walk away. That's that, that wasn't Richard's personality. At least I don't, I don't remember that, that actually happening. Like, you know, he was like, all right, I'm going to say something to, you know, get everybody angry at me. He just was himself. He just presented who he is. And people, some people took offense at it because it just went so against their assumptions and presuppositions about what a native person should be, about what Christianity is, about who gets to control the dialogue and who gets to determine who is right and who is wrong. And Richard broke through that. And uh, what he would do, he, is, he would just present what he believed what he knew as his experience and his truth. Uh, you know, he had a doctorate in missiology. So he, he didn't come off, he, he could, he could do the academic expert talk as well. So Richard would just present, this is what I believe. He would, I think, do it in a, in a humorous and approachable way. But I think when people saw that, some would, would take offense. I mean, I, I want to be careful here because I'm not comparing Richard to Jesus in this sense of the word <laughs> as a kind of a messianic figure. Uh, but I mean, that's kind of the way Jesus operated with, with people, right? I oh, mean, sure. Jesus, yeah. yeah, would say things that were just true. He wasn't, you know, the goal was not to make people angry. The goal was to speak the truth. And some people found it offensive. And some people found the truth to be offensive. And I think that's the way Richard was. He just, Love speaking truth in a way that that actually spoke to people, and if people were upset by it, it wasn't because Richard was not speaking truth or trying to get them upset. It was because they were shaken by the truth that did not jibe with their reality. 
So in that sense, I mean, what Richard would oftentimes do is create a, a necessary cognitive dis dissonance and disruption. So oftentimes the pushback that he would get and um, the, the criticism that he would get was not for the sake of criticism that he wanted, but it was actually people who were responding to this truth and trying to figure out how to respond to it and, and not being able to. So I, again, I really appreciate the way Richard kind of spoke the truth. And I, I believe he did it in love because the, the, the graciousness with which he received people who critiqued him, Richard spoke the truth, but then also he was not always expecting people to respond to him well, and people didn't, not because Richard provoked them intentionally, but more so that they couldn't handle the truth that was being spoken to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's great. At the beginning of your chapter, you compare Richard to Malcolm X. Can you talk about the similarity that you see between them? Yeah, I hesitated with that a little bit, actually. I kind of went back and forth on, on that because um, I, I wanted to be careful that I wasn't making kind of a gendered statement. So I, I used the quote at, um, at Malcolm X's funeral uh, by Ossie Davis, who says, uh, Malcolm was our manhood, our, our black manhood. And I, again, I wanted to be careful that this is not a gendered statement, kind of putting masculinity ahead of femininity or you know, extolling the values of certain types of masculinity. But within oppressed communities, masculinity oftentimes has a dysfunctional expression. And some of that is the result of oppression, right? So you have kind of an oppression upon black men and that, that oppression can lead to certain expressions of masculinity. And so what Malcolm X presented was a, a type of masculinity that actually challenged people and called people to higher standards. So again, this is not so much a gendered comment as more of kind of a cultural, racial understanding type of comment. And I felt that Richard Twist was the same way, that when, when Malcolm X stood tall as a, as a black man to stand before an audience, and often sometimes a white audience, and to not back down in who he was and how he was made and who he is, that presented a prophetic interruption into the narrative of white supremacy. I mean, you know, you see this in the writings of Malcolm X. Uh, if you saw the movie Malcolm X, there's a powerful scene where Malcolm kind of stands in, in front of a, of, a, of a white audience and just kind of demonstrates that he's not backing down, that he, he knows what the truth is and he's not backing down from that. And without elevating uh, Richard to that level on some, on some, in some ways, I, I kind of saw that's what Richard oftentimes did. There was a perception of what a native man should be. You're either the pet who kind of dances for us and, you know, gives us, you know, entertains us with your, you know, Native American rituals. That's kind of, you know, you dance for us and you, you make us happy. Or you are uh, a person that actually is a threat to us. And Richard uh, was not either. Uh, he was funny, he was uh, humorous, and he was very entertaining in, in many ways. Uh, and yet he also was someone who created dissonance and created disruption. But at the end of the day, I think very similar to the way Ossie Davis uh, described uh, Malcolm X, he was someone who was willing to stand before his oppressors and not back down from who he is. And that is, I think, what Ossie Davis was describing Malcolm X about. And that's kind of the parallel that developed with uh, Richard uh, in how he stands against in his identity as a Native man uh, before some of these oppressive systems that he faced. Mm -hmm. how, how do you think that Richard is a witness that we need today? 
Boy, I that would be it would have been amazing just over the last maybe three years in the state of our politics to have had a voice like Richard's in the in the and the especially in the evangelical arena to kind of speak on issues like wait a minute uh, you keep talking about these refugees and immigrants you know uh, uh, did you ever take a take a look and to see that history of where these refugees and immigrants actually started you know to to, to speak into these issues from a totally different perspective boy that would have been a well uh, extremely welcome voice and an extremely welcomed uh, intrusion into what, a lot of what the dialogue is happening right now I think, um, like so many of us, he would also have been very frustrated just because the work that he did to raise awareness around issues around race and justice and poverty and cultural uh, chauvinism, the, the, the challenge that he brought, there, was a, there, was, there were times when that was kind of seeing some momentum moving forward. And you know, I probably was more hopeful five years ago and three years ago than I am now. And three, five years ago, there was um, a real sense of, yeah, there are more voices emerging like Richard's and, you know, that the voices that had been previously silenced are now being heard. And sadly, those voices are being drowned out now because of some of the rhetoric around the evangelical community that prioritizes the Trump narrative, the Farwell narrative, the the you know Robert Jeffers stories. I mean, it's it's just it's just very very sad that some of the momentum that had been generated uh, by folks like Richard and by folks like John Perkins and Ron Sider and Jim Wallace, who were maybe presenting a different way of looking at evangelical Christianity, a lot of that unfortunately has been reversed in the last three years, and to the detriment and loss of American Christianity, and particularly uh, evangelicalism. Uh, and I think Richard would have been still fighting the good fight, still you know, speaking the truth and saying it with grace and humor. But it, it like so many of us, uh, have just grown uh, weary that some of that momentum that was generated by people like Richard has seems to have stalled over the last three, five years. Uh, and that's, that's disappointing. Uh, at the same time, it, uh, we, we would not, we should not give up. I don't think Richard would have given up. Uh, we should not give up still speaking the truth and continue to speak the truth. Uh, and that's, I think, where his voice would have been so important because he would have been the ongoing, consistent voice of truth that spoke to the dysfunction of our time. Mm-hmm. How do you think you were changed um, through your friendship with Richard? You talked about that a little bit, but are there other things you'd like to say about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I do remember when, when I, I heard that he had passed and, you know, he was in the hospital for several days and, um, you know, they eventually did not resuscitate him. But, um, you know, the, I think when he had had the heart attack, you know, within hours, he was probably medically dead and then uh, got the word that he was, um, that he had, you know, uh, that he had passed. I, I just remember kind of being uh, awash with emotions uh, at that moment and feeling angry initially and then realizing, you know what, that's, I don't think that's what Richard would want. And I remember going to his funeral um, and the memorial service actually that he had and the, I, you know, that initial sense of anger that uh, why is one of the great heroes of our faith, uh, cut down before, you know, his, his time, in my opinion, you know, he was in his late fifties. Uh, I felt like he had another 10, 20 years of just being a profound voice 
as a speaker and as a writer and as an academic that he had a, several more decades of contributions left. So I was, I was angry that that was cut short. But I think what I saw at his memorial service was, uh, and they kind of said, you know, anybody who was kind of impacted and mentored by Richard, please stand up. And it was just hundreds of people who stood up. Whether it was through his readings or through his teachings, you know, I had the benefit and the and the real gift of being able to spend personal time with him, and that was just in the in the in a, in a small auditorium. I can't even imagine the the broader impact that he had because of his writings, because of his teaching, and so for me, I I, I try to keep that I guess that end game in mind to say that. Um, there are a lot of things that might be memorable about Richard, you know, his funny stories and his boldness, his courage, all of that. But at the end of the day, he had invested in so many people's lives that his impact uh, continues on. And a little bit of Richard still continues in so many of us. And the things that I've learned about how to say things with grace and humor, how to speak boldly without having to back down all the time, how to speak uh, truth in love. And, and to be also gracious at the same time. Those are lessons that I take with me, but maybe the larger lesson is the way he impacted me and how maybe that's something that might be what's most important for the next 10, 20 years, leaving that kind of impact and legacy, leaving kind of an impact that says, it's not just the words that you spoke or the funny stories that you told, uh, but the fact that people emulate you and respect you in a way that goes beyond just one generation. So even in his death, Richard still teaches. Uh, Richard still stands very tall uh, in my mind and my heart and the heart and minds of so many others. Well, it's been really great to talk with you. I really appreciate your time today. And um, thanks for sharing more about Richard. My pleasure. This has been great. Can I Get a Witness? The podcast is a production of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia, a research initiative whose mission is to study the social consequences of theological ideas for the sake of a more just and compassionate world. To learn more about lived theology, visit livedtheology.org or find us on social media. This podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Jessica Seibert and written, edited, and hosted by me, Shay Tuttle. Original music is by Drew Wilson. Special thanks to project director Charles Marsh. The book Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice is edited by Charles Marsh, Shay Tuttle, and Daniel P. Rhodes. It's published by Urban's Publishing Company and is available now. Thank you for listening to Can I Get a Witness? The podcast. <laughs>